If you have your Bible, turn to Malachi chapter 3. Like I said, dull and quick. Malachi chapter 3. If you have an app, snap it open. Um, yeah, I think Angel Tree is something that churches across all um, denominations and expressions have engaged Jesus. Um, our, our series, of course, is Unexpected Jesus. And I think one of the things that comes to mind here is when Jesus says, um, you know, you've done well, enter into the joys of your Lord. And they act so shocked. And they say, you know, what, what? He's like, I was in prison and you visited me. It's probably one of the most scandalous things in your Bible. Jesus was in prison. He identifies with convicts. And so I would encourage all of us to make sure that that tree is empty today and that we visit Jesus this season in unexpected places. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly, everybody shout suddenly, suddenly come into his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we come to you in the name of your Son, and we ask that you would send your Holy Spirit afresh into our hearts and minds as we sit with the Scriptures. We want to hear your voice. We want there to be a prophetic sense of your heart in this room today. Convict us, challenge us, encourage us, heal us, call us closer to yourself. We ask this through Christ our Lord, and everybody said... Amen. There are themes traditionally associated with Advent and hope and joy. This candle that will light next Sunday is the Gaudete candle. It's the Sunday of joy and love and these peace, these traditional, well, we, we think of as traditional themes, but this is more of the happy Western modern take on things. Years ago, the four Sundays of Advent were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So I think we're, I think we're on Judgment Sunday today, and everybody said, yes. Yes, I came to church, I braved the storm for Judgment Sunday. Paul gets to preach about heaven, I'm going to preach about hell. Uniquely qualified. Now, last week, as happens when I get carried away with myself, that was a bad joke. I, last week, I omitted a quote. And it's funny because the quote is sort of the anchoring quote for me personally for Advent. And uh, I wanted to make sure that I shared it with you, especially because it probably works better this Sunday than it did last Sunday. So it was like a 
the Holy Ghost led me to omit it. <laughs> Bernie, I'll take it. Uh, so this is from Fleming Rutledge, who you hear me talk about often. And Paul, if you're planning on using it, too bad. Advent summons us to take a fearless inventory of our own hearts. Advent summons us to take a fearless inventory of our own hearts. For a guy who doesn't like to open the mail, this is an intimidating quote. It's almost unsettling the way she just throws that out there. A fearless inventory of your heart. Our hearts are scary places, friends. I don't know if you know this or not. Can I get a witness that our heart is a scary place? Some of us actually are brave enough to say out loud that we just follow our hearts. You all have fun with that. (laughs) In in a way, Fleming's Reverend Dr. Rutledge's quote aligns beautifully with the, the, the text we just heard from Zachariah's song. You see, he says in there that God is working among his people so that Remember, we heard this. We might serve him without fear. Serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And honestly, I have to tell you, if I put the two things together, if I put Fleming's quote with Zachariah's song, we have problems because I have plenty of reasons to fear. One of the things that actually concerns me is that I've been in ministry for long enough to not be afraid of the pulpit. You see, my holiness and righteousness levels are not where I'd like them to be. And I have a feeling that if they even got to where I wanted them to be, God would still not be impressed. And this is why the end times movies I made fun of last week scared me so much, right? I mean, if anybody was going to get their head chopped off, it was me. Or you know what? No, actually, I knew it was bad either way because I would clearly get the mark of the beast. That would be me. (laughs) I'd have a tattoo, 666. I'd get two of them probably. Just, you know, hand and the forehead just to be sure because my heart is in that sort of condition. But isn't it funny, though, even as children we know that our hearts are not up to par. Even as children, and maybe, should I even change that to say, especially as children, because I think children are better qualified to know their hearts than adults. See, our hearts, by the time we become adults, we've been listening to our own stories about ourselves for so long that we're kind of not as familiar with our hearts as we should be. See, we're concerned about the stories people are telling about us. We should be more concerned about the stories we tell ourselves. No, 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 please stop there because that was very good. (laughs) Too many saints, especially in church, because nobody wants to go to church because we are the grapevine Marvin sang about. This is the church, right? I'm sorry, that was a black joke. Um, Marvin Gaye sang a song, heard the grape. Anyway. I say those things on occasion. Nobody wants to go to church because everybody's talking about everybody at church. Everybody's, and we're always worried, well, what is so-and-so going to say? Forget what so-and-so is going to say. 
What is it that you have been saying to yourself for the last 10 years? And sometimes that's why our hearts get so clouded up and we don't really know what's going on. See, I grew up not looking forward to the Lord's return. Hello. I grew up in church, the son of a pastor, not wanting Jesus to come back for reasons I disclosed last Sunday, as well as just the fact that I knew my heart. It was appropriate for me to be afraid of Jesus coming back. Frankly, we don't like the idea of God judging us. Right? I mean, come on. But I, I would suggest this morning that we like the idea of a judgmental God even less than that. We may not like the idea that God is going to judge us, but we really don't like the idea that the God we serve is judgmental. Especially in our day and age. Especially in our day and age. Last week when I spoke to you, I spoke to you about Jesus being unexpected because we're distracted. Because of distraction. The distraction of our abundance. The distraction of our anxiety. Today I want to talk to us about Jesus being unexpected because of distortion. Not because of distraction, but because of distortion. I think what happens is we so don't want to be judged and we so don't want to worship a judgmental God that we actually distort who God is so that he has more in common with the Santa Claus at the mall than he does with Yahweh of the prophets. In other words, what if we so distorted Jesus in our own imaginations that we wouldn't recognize him when he's standing before us as the judge. In other words, every eye will behold him, but will every eye recognize him? Neil Gaiman wrote a book called American Gods, and I must give credit to Colton Barnaby, who insisted that I buy it and read all 600 pages of it. Got to like page 528, and I read this. Have you thought about what it means to be a god? It means everyone gets to recreate you in their own minds. You barely have your own identity anymore. Instead, you're a thousand aspects of what people need you to be. And everyone wants something different from you. I wonder sometimes about the god I worship. Does he deserve a capital G at the front of his name? Or have I created a non-judgmental idol? Or have I created a selectively judgmental idol who judges all of my enemies with great efficiency and thrift? But when it comes to me, he takes a coffee break. I think this may be one of the things we should consider today on this day of judgment, on this text that's given to us where the prophet says, who can endure the day of his coming? I stand with you and I say on most Sunday mornings and I plan to say in the future, Lord, come among us, move among us. But a day is coming when he will appear and we may not be so cavalier in our invitation. 
And I think this may be one of the ways in which we distort Jesus. And what we do to him is we take away this aspect of him as judge. When the sermon is over, you will confess something with me. That we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, who will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. Don't let those words fall off your lips too easily. The data is not particularly fresh, but I think it's even, I would guess, it's probably more true now than it's ever been. In 2007, a man named David Kinneman was doing some work for the Barna Group, and they did extensive research among uh, what he would refer to as young outsiders, people who are under 35 and don't go to the church. And the top three reasons why people that we would call millennials don't go to church. Number two, 87% of them said judgmental. Christianity is judgmental. There's anything that we don't want to be, it's judgmental. We don't want a God who's judgmental. We certainly don't want to be transformed and conformed to the image of a God who's judgmental. This is deeply problematic for us on a day when we prepare for the judgment of the Lord. And this is why, to go back the other way, if we thought 2007 was bad, let's go back to 1937. H. Richard Niebuhr, this, this, let me tell you, this, comes, this quote that I'm going to share with you comes across theology textbooks and classes on a pretty regular basis, at least the ones I'm in. Niebuhr said this, A God without wrath has brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. This is what we like, friends. Let's hear it again. A God without wrath has brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. This, of course, was said in response to the ideas of the great society and the liberalism of the early 20th century, which all came crashing down with this little thing called World War I. Maybe people aren't so great after all. (laughs) Think about it. The hype leading up to World War I is that people are good, intrinsically and irrefutably good. And then they proceeded for the next four years to murder one another to the tune of millions of people. And everybody sat back and couldn't figure out what to do with themselves. And it's in that post-disastrous environment that Niebuhr makes these comments. Is this what you wanted? Is this what you, this is how you thought reality worked? You thought it worked in such a way that God doesn't have to judge anything? God doesn't have any wrath? This is the kingdom of God is a judgment-free zone? See, the problem is something has to be done about violence. Something has to be done about abuse, sexual abuse, abuse of power, Something has to be done. Something has to be done about hunger. Something has to be done about poverty. 
Something has to be done. And if we haven't figured this out, we're not fixing ourselves. Remember what Ms. Rutledge said. Advent summons us to take a fearless inventory of our hearts. I'm not going to make any comment one way or the other. I'm going to go there. I'm not going to make any comment one way or the other about gun control. But here's what I'm going to tell you. We're in a secular society that no longer has sin as a category for reality. And so they are groping to try and cope with something that ultimately cannot. And I'm not saying whether or not laws should be passed. What I'm saying is no matter what laws you pass, it won't fix it and solve it because it's beyond the reach of the law. And I want you to hear that as a preacher speaking because I want to use that word law just like Paul uses it in Galatians. There is, again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have common sense gun laws. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is it doesn't matter how many you pass, you will not comprehensively, pervasively, and thoroughly solve the problem because on some level, there's a sin problem here. There are violent hearts in men and women that can't be fixed by passing laws. They can only be contained. And we hope we can contain them effectively by virtue of common grace. But something has to be done about violence and poverty and hunger and abuse and all of the evils that plague our world. Something has to be done about Mark Arstead's heart. Oh, it's great when we start to, when we're using, right, vague, abstract terms, concepts. But when I start to talk about Paul Pano's heart, Janice's heart, Mark's heart, Kate's heart, when I start to talk about those things, then suddenly we get a little bit uncomfortable because we don't want God to approach those issues with the same ferocity we want him to approach the other ones. You see, we all in this room have patterns of behavior that we've engaged in over the course of our life that brings pain to ourselves and to others. We all do it. Fighting and flighting and ignoring and abusing. We all do it. It's not outside. We're not immune. And Advent is the invitation to say, have the courage because of God's grace. To take a long, hard look in the mirror. There's one scene in the Harry Potter films where Harry's standing before a mirror and it shows you everything that you, your deepest desire, not everything, it shows you your deepest desire. And in one moment, he's looking at this mirror and, why am I forgetting his name? He's my favorite character. Dumbledore, thank you, is standing behind him. That's how we've got to look in the mirror. Yeah, I know Harry Potter, I read the books and all that. We're up walking out of the building. Wizardry and sin in the house of God. <sighs> I'm going to get sidetracked in a minute, so let me stop. He's standing in front of the mirror, and there's Dumbledore standing in the mirror. That's, that's the inventory we're talking about. We're talking about looking in that mirror with the Lord of glory standing over our shoulder. I've died for this. I've given my life for this. I've left the splendor of heaven for this. Let's deal with this. 
We have the capacity to deal with this. We have the ability to deal with this. It's called grace. It's called goodness. It's called mercy that never ends. Loving kindness that endures forever. Let's judge the hell out of this. Literally. You see, a judgment-free God is an idol. But an evil-free mark is a lie. And Advent calls us to a clear vision, not only of who God is, but Advent calls us to courageous honesty about who we are. No more distortion. About 15 years ago, I went with a friend of mine was preaching for a young pastor in Chicago. He had been pastoring for two years. You'll love this. So he had two nights of services with two speakers each night. It was awesome. Basically, it was a marathon, right? And young guy, I was a young guy. We exchanged information. Haven't seen him for 15 years. I'm walking through Atlanta Airport this year, and I see him. Here's the difference, though. I'm still kind of me. He got famous. So I'm walking through the, like, Grammys and Stellars and all those things. And so I'm walking through the airport, and I'm like, Charles. And he looked at me. He hasn't seen me for 15 years. And he's like, he, like, frozen. Because the image he had of me and who I really am right now are two very different things. <laughs> you see, he might have been expecting an Adonis to show up a man of younger stature, that is me. I just want to let that sit with you. <laughs> now look at me. Now look up there. <laughs> Atlanta Airport. Your face and his face are very similar right now. <laughs> He's like... <laughs> And those images are actually distorted, I think, a little bit. They're kind of, it's, I'm actually skinnier in those pictures than it even looks. But here's the point. Sometimes we have an idea in our head of what somebody's supposed to look like. And when you're looking for this cat and this dude's walking through the airport, you're not going to stop and say, Mark, what's up? Because for 15 years, you've been sitting with this dude. And friends, here's the problem with Advent. Advent stops and says, you've been sitting with this Jesus for your whole life. And a different Jesus is showing up. He may not look the way you think he's going to look. Things may be a little bit different. In Titus, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Titus chapter 2. I'm picking the very popular books today, Malachi and Titus. First and second Timothy, then Titus. I think in this letter to Titus, Paul does a beautiful job of bringing out the first and second comings of Jesus. And that's really what Advent is about. This is a beautiful Advent text. 
Verse 11 of Titus 2 is where we find the first coming of Jesus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And everybody said, I do that on occasion. And everybody said, amen. It's very good for your soul to say amen. There's really, it it is. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. But look at this. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Let's stop here for a minute. He's writing about Christians. In other words, we've so been taught, pray the sinner's prayer, we've been taught conversionism, that this might seem odd to some of us, and that is God is not satisfied with us praying the sinner's prayer. God is interested in training us. He's committed to training us to renounce, look at this, ungodliness and worldly passions that we bring with us to the other side of the sinner's prayer. Have you found that one to be true? Okay. And to live controlled, upright, and godly lives, look at this, in the present age. This is Advent, is the present age. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is Paul getting at? Take the inventory of your heart fearlessly. When you look there, you will find ungodliness, and worldly desires. But don't fret, because God has given us grace to train us that we can live through and overcome those issues so that we can wait well, wait in expectation. This is, I think, what the prophet was getting at when he talked about fuller's soap and a refining fire. Fuller's soap is not one that's on the shelf in my bathroom right now. Fuller's soap is an interesting term. It refers to the ice plant. The ice plant, which has a particular kind of alkali in it. What's interesting about this plant is this plant was only found in Babylon. It was not found in Israel. Babylon is the place of Israel's pain. Babylon is the place of Israel's confusion. Babylon is the place of Israel's judgment. And God says, in that place, I have the resources needed to cleanse you fully. The place you don't want to go is the place God is going to use to restore, to repair, and to revive. That's what he's saying. When he says Fuller Soap, we think, is that a brand? Is it like the Fuller Brush salesman? Like, what's going on with Fuller Soap? I like Irish Spring. And if you're listening to this as somebody who just left Babylon, you go, oh, I know what that soap is. We can't get that here. Huh. When he talks about the refiner's fire, he's talking about a process in which they would take like a bone bowl and they would put lead in it. And they would heat the bowl so much 
that the bowl would actually absorb the lead or burn off the lead and all that would be left would be silver. I don't think of silver as coming out of lead. Right? You don't call somebody, you don't insult, I know you don't insult anybody, but when you hear other people insulting people on the playground with the Fresh Prince, they don't call people silverheads, they call them leadheads, right? Because lead is this common, dense thing. Silver is precious. They don't come into your, the burglars don't come, you know, in the black suits with the black hats and stuff at night when they break into your house. They're not stealing your pencil collection. They're stealing your silverware. Who would have thought that hidden in lead would be silver? Who would have thought that hidden in something that's dirty and poisonous is something that is redemptive and valuable? This is what God is getting at. Unexpected Jesus, how about unexpected judgment? How about the place of your pain, the place you want to avoid, the place of commonness, the place that you would look over? These are the places where God says, I'm going to do my work. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to refine you in those sorts of experiences. The coming judgment of God is going to end the hurting we experience and the hurting we cause. And under our breath, breath, not breath, under our breath we say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, that not only my hurting is going to end, but the hurting that I've caused in other people's lives is going to end. In Revelation 21, we find this incredible scene that so many of us are familiar with. This apocalyptic new heaven and new earth. In verse 4, it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. How have they passed away? Can I offer an explanation as to how they've passed away? God didn't wave a magic wand over the former things. No, God is a consuming fire. The former things are gone because God has consumed them in fire. We're praying. We've been taught to pray, God, save us from the fire. I came here this morning to tell you God wants to save us through the fire. The thing we've been taught to avoid and to dread, we don't dread. We go into the fire knowing we come out of it pure, refined, clean, not hurting or hurting others. This is where judgment is heading. Mourning is going to pass away. This is what Isaiah speaks of. In the fourth chapter of Isaiah, there's this line in the fourth verse. It says, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth, I love the prophets, the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst, Look at this, by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Get out the filth. Get out the pain. This is why Malachi asked us, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure it? 
The good news is that Isaiah, excuse me, Malachi's question is rhetorical. He's going to answer it. Who can endure the day of his coming? He says this in that third verse. He says, God is going to sit as the refiner and the purifier. And look what is the outcome. Friends, on the other side of God's judgment, we will not only be able to endure, we will be able to bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. This is what Zechariah spoke of in his prophecy, that there will be a day when without fear, we can come before God in holiness and righteousness. How does it happen? It happens because of judgment. It happens because God says something has to be done about Mark's heart. And I'm going to do it. And everything that ought not be there, I'm going to burn it up. And I'm going to save him not from the fire, but through the fire. Not from Babylon, but through Babylon. That's what I'm going to do in Mark's life. And this is why we're waiting. This is why we're expecting a king who is not wearing a red coat with a pom-pom on his hat. We're waiting for a king who is a judge. And we don't take it lightly, but neither do we cower in fear because we know that after all of our training and all of our waiting, he's finally going to do in us what we could never do for ourselves. He's finally going to set to rights not just the evils of the world, but the evils in this universe known as Mark Arstead. And we look forward to that moment because, friends, listen, this is when we will be able to participate fully in the life of God. Can I say big things now? This is what you were created for. You weren't created to be happy. You weren't created to be healthy. You weren't created to have an abundance. All of those things pale in comparison to what you were created for. You were created for greater things than that. You were created to enter into the dance of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. You were created out of the overflow of joy of the Godhead. And whatever evil and sin has marred and separated that reality, that will be happening once again on the other side of judgment. Everything we've longed for, that famous line that every theologian and preacher of of significance gets credit for that the, every young man who knocks on the door of a brothel is knocking for God. Every sin you commit, every wretched thing you do, every piece of brokenness that's in our lives is us trying to find that participation in the life of God through pleasure, through power, through abundance, through peace. We're trying to find it, trying to find it. And God says, you can't find it. I've got to find you and I've got to judge the hell out of you. And when I'm done with you, you'll be pure, you'll be whole, you'll be refined, and you will enter fully into my life. The creational origin of your person will be fully realized. And this is why we wait for a judge. So let's pray. If you're like me and the idea of taking a good, long, honest look at your heart 
takes a little bit more courage than you currently have. But you know you need to do it. The stories that you've been telling yourself for five years, 10 years, 20 years, haven't exactly been accurate. And this Advent season is this invitation. Dumbledore standing in the mirror with you. Saying, let's look. Let's look honestly. If, if you want prayer this morning, I want to pray for you. For that courage, for that boldness, for that trust. Some of us, it's just a matter of trusting that whatever we see, God can handle it. Whatever's there, God's got it. God's not shocked by our evil. I'd like to pray for you this morning. If that's you, I just want you to raise your hand with me, my hands up. Say, I need to touch courage this Advent season, but I, I want some freedom. I want some refinement. I want just some stuff that's got to go. Father, our hands are up to you this morning like children, and we're trusting in your goodness. We're trusting in your kindness and your patience. And I'm praying that your Holy Spirit will descend on us this morning, especially those that are reaching out to you. And in this moment, we feel especially the need for holy courage in our hearts. Be honest about who we are. God, we on our own can't stand and endure your day, but you stand with us. We lean on you this morning. Spirit, guide us, lead us, convict us, Restore us. We ask through Christ, who lives and reigns with you, one God forever. Amen.